0: Thank you, Alex. He is Lord. What a wonderful um, tone of worship that is when we think that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess and will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is going to happen. It hasn't happened yet, but it will happen. Whether we're believers in him or not, every tongue will confess and every knee will bow before the Lord. And uh, what a wonderful thing that in this day of grace, we can do that by trusting and believing in Jesus Christ, the gospel. This morning, I want you to open your Bibles to First Timothy, and we have just begun this series last week, and we're going to continue uh, in it this morning. And we'll be looking at the the first seven um, verses in First uh, Timothy, primarily from verse 3, where we picked up from last week, we did the first two verses and we will look at the next few. So open the scriptures and follow me as I read from verses 1 right through to end of verse 7. And may we pay attention because this is the holy and inspired word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Saviour and of Christ Jesus, who was our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. And may God add a blessing to his word this morning. As I was looking into this and trying to really grasp what uh, Paul was instructing Timothy here, I was reminded how many years ago a man proudly told me how he was turning his garage into a workshop because he wanted to renovate his family home and uh, he wanted to do this because it would give him somewhere to pre-make his kitchen, new kitchen and some place to stack his timber and and his woodworking machinery etc etc you get the picture and I'm sure you agree with me that his goal was a commendable one and it certainly met with his wife and his family's approval that we going to get a refitted home out of all this. But as time went on, we noticed, as our family, or particularly me I guess, that his workshop took on a distinct change from what it was first intended to be. You see this man was a engineer in a power station and making steam model trains fast became his fancy. His workshop soon became full of train parts and miniature railway tracks and and metal working machinery. The boys and their toys, right? The family makeover or the family home makeover uh, took a backward step during this shift of priorities. The house reno job, that goal was hijacked, can we say, by a lesser cause. I guess if we were called to sum up this man's action, just looking from the outside, we might come up with fickle, selfish, inconsiderate, just to name a few. When we looked at the big picture of what his first goal was. But, folks, what I want to draw your attention to this morning is that the same thing often happens amongst God's people. We get diverted from the true goal of Christian life and busy ourselves with lesser things. So what is the true Christian goal? That's a good question. I, think I believe Jesus summed this up for us and we can't go wrong with when Jesus summed things up, right? Jesus summed this up, the believer's goal, when he said that the two greatest commandments of God is that we're to love God with all our being and to love our neighbour as we do ourselves. We see that in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 to verse 39. That's the goal. So genuine love for God and others is to be the goal of the Christian life. That's the priority. That should be our overall purpose statement, if you want to put it that way. And yet as believers, we can so easily get caught up with the trivial and neglect the essential. That's what happened at Ephesus. This church that Timothy was being instructed by Paul to pastor and what to do. You see, the folks at Ephesus, the believers of, Exodus, of Ephesus, had lost sight of the essential, the essential precedence of sound biblical doctrine whereby the church became tangled up with trivial and devastating false teachings. We see this in Revelation even later on, much later on, when the Apostle John wrote of the church at Ephesus. It's the same church. He says, I have this against you. You have lost your first love. In other words, they become tangled up with other things, and they lost their first love in the letters to the seven churches, which Steve is dealing with in his series. But I find it interesting that as we track through Paul's missionary journeys... On the last leg of his third missionary journey, Paul calls a meeting. He doesn't go to Ephesus itself because he was on a fast track to Jerusalem for the, for the Passover, etc. But he calls at Miletus, I think the city was, which wasn't far away, for the elders of this Ephesus church to come down and meet him because he wanted a meeting with the elders of this church. And he warns them this very thing would happen in Acts chapter 20. This is just prior to his first imprisonment. It was not persecution, he said, that without, from without that would wreak havoc in this church, but what was going to happen, and he warned them, that savage wolves from within the congregation was going to be their problem. This is what he says in Acts chapter 20 to the elders at the Ephesus church. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock and from among your own selves men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore be on alert Remembering that the night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Wow. You see, Paul had spent, he knew these believers. He loved them dearly. Remember we talked last week. He had spent two years at least at Ephesus teaching them at, the, at, a, at a Bible school But such was his love that he admonished them and he he warned them, it says, with tears. This was no cut and dry theologian here who had no heart. He had a compassion for them. And here we are reading instruction or commandments given to Timothy, this young pastor who was given the responsibility of leading this church. And here he is to understand that Paul had already prophetically spoken of the day when the very thing that was happening was happening now. And he said to Timothy, Timothy, you have got to deal with this issue that I warned about some time ago. So what does he say to Timothy? What does, what does Paul instruct Timothy to do in order to bring about God's divinely approved remedy for the problem that was at hand in this Ephesus church? This is what he does. He commands Timothy to refute both the error and those who are promoting it. That's what the Apostle does. The Apostle Paul, he urges, he commands. That word instructs there, urges, has the idea of what one would do in the military when a subordinate hears an order from one higher up. The Same power in that word. And so Timothy was under, can we say, an apostolic charge to confront these men and to note the contrast between the end results of their teaching with the goal of biblical teaching. That's what he to take notice of. We see that in verses 4 and 5 of our text today. Now that also leads to another healthy and an important question for all of us. What is the goal of biblical teaching? We know that the goal of Christian life is to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul and all our mind and to love others as ourselves. But what is the goal of biblical teaching? The text here sees that the church of Ephesus, what was it doing? It was being diverted from the goal of Christian life by some of these false teachers and uh, that was Ephesians 4 really once again you've got to go to that book to see some of the context in the history Ephesians chapter 4 there Paul says that indicates that they are being tossed about by every wind of doctrine and that they'll speak the truth in love and so this church was having some real issues going down amongst it in its midst at this present time and so non-apostolic doctrines were being taught they were teachings that were not from God And so these false teachers had turned aside to what does verse 6 describe it? Fruitless discussion. And this fruitless discussion was centered on myths and speculations about genealogies. That is, what was going down and being promoted as truth here was merely fanciful legends. Stories that were manufactured by men and were being passed off to the believers in the church as truth as God's truth. And Paul ridicules that in chapter 4 of this book, verse 7, and he calls them, will the fables fit for old women? That's what he says. Folks, the doctrine of the apostles was God's truth spoken through them, through the apostles, to the church, which is the only truth for God's people. We need to understand that. We hear lots of different things. We hear men that will get up and, and today in the evangelical church even and say I have had a word from the Lord and they will disperse all sorts of things that are totally contrary or not in the word of God and particularly stamped with approval from the apostles. Paul does this. He judges them. These people who were teaching these false doctrines in, uh, first, in, in chapter 4, verse 1 of this book. He says, In latter times, some will fall away from the faith, being fixated, that's the idea, being fixated on deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So there was wrong doctrines, false doctrines being taught here. And they were being passed off as truth when we go back to the book of Ephesians or we'll go over to the book of Ephesians, we'll see in chapter 2 verse 20 that Paul makes it clear again that the church the church as a whole and church when he is speaking to the Ephesians he is speaking of the local church has been built upon what? Upon the foundation of who? The apostles and the prophets. And the chief cornerstone of the church is Jesus Christ. That's what he says in Ephesians 2 verse 20. So he cements this in place. And this was being undone at this present time when he writes to Timothy. He contrasts and judges evil doctrine with sound doctrine in verse 6 of that same chapter in verse 4. And he says, true doctrine is to be taught to the saints. And so Paul then, as he does here in our text, assigns Timothy the difficult task, but necessary task, of confronting these men and getting the church back on track. How would you like that task? And so here in verses 3 to 7 of our text today, Paul makes clear that the goal of biblical teaching is love in step with God's truth. Now as we think about that, we need to tread carefully. As many Christians swing to different ends of the pendulum on this, many will swing one wrong way by saying, "Ah, doctrine just divides. It causes too much controversy. So go easy on theology and just concentrate on loving people. That's all that matters. That's one end of the wrong pendulum swing. It's dolefully weak actually because it's impossible to know and practice true biblical love, No, I say that, biblical love apart from biblical theology. if you haven't got good sound doctrine to know what true biblical love is you will default into defining what love is by the culture around us that's all there is to it and sad to say we see much of that in the church today then on the other end of the pendulum we get those like the pharisees of jesus time who prided themselves in knowing theology and doctrine But so often, at the expense of practicing biblical love, true biblical love, they usually twist the doctrine and theology for their own means, but they pride themselves in knowing that. And then we get those, can I say, in the middle of the pendulum swing, kind of stationary people who assumes that biblical love is defined by the culture instead of the Bible? And so we often see, sad to say, in churches where the Bible is not as important as it should be. Opinions and ideas and cultural standards take over. Even defining love and practical matters like marriage is to be between a man and a woman, not a man and another man and a woman and another woman. They twist that and, and they kind of sit in the middle of the pendulum and allow culture to define what true biblical love is. They think that being true love means being nice all the time, burying our differences, always being tolerant and never confronting anyone over their sin or opposing anyone because that's merely being judgmental. But as we think about that, if that's what the Apostle Paul means biblical love to be, he contradicts himself big time in this very chapter, let alone anywhere else. You see, almost all of his letters, whether they're to churches or to individuals, are centered around confronting error and sin in those who are out of step with the gospel and its demands. So rather than being on the pendulum swing this morning, can I use that imagery? Let's step off the pendulum for a while. Well, hopefully permanently. And see what the Apostle Paul teaches Timothy and us about the goal of biblical teaching. So what I want to do now is to help you see the answer to this question by developing three thoughts, just three thoughts, simple thoughts, From our text. And the first one is biblical teaching has been assigned by God to those who teach. We see this in verse three and four. This kind of develops this little message this morning. In other words, a Bible teacher carries the heavy responsibility to teach God's message. That's a bit of a no brainer. But it is a heavy responsibility. And it's God's message, it's his only. And those who teach are to do it without any addition or changes that we may even wish, for whatever reason, to make. We cannot do that. This is what the false teachers in our text were doing. They were making up their own messages, supposedly even based on Scripture, probably the Old Testament genealogies or or mythical stories from that period that were what we would call legends. And by the way, there were many of them. You can go to extra-biblical material and get many myths and legends that were based in and around this time, especially in the Old Testament period. No doubt they were interesting and entertaining stories, but note how Paul tags them. He says they are myths And he contrasts them with something else. He contrasts them with this in verse 4. Have a look at that. He contrasts these myths with the administration of God, which is by faith. Now, most likely these men were teachers with a Jewish background of some sort. And they would take names from the Old Testament and, uh, and make up stories that had no real factual basis. As I said, they would get these stories from extra-biblical writings and with which there are many, many fables of that kind. But as a result of these myths and endless genealogies that are described here, as a result of these things, these stories, these legends being foisted on the saints, it was devastating because all it does, it says it gave rise to, to mere speculation. That's what it says in the text. In other words, their teaching produced speculation. The Greek word means controversy and confusion. That's what it carries, that Greek word there. And even delusion. So their teaching did nothing toward the unity of the true gospel, It did nothing toward furthering the administration of God which is by faith. That's what that means there. It did nothing towards developing love and unity in the local church. The heresy struck a major blow to God's administration. We can use another word for that, to God's administration plan. Which is, what is God's administration or God's administration plan? Is salvation by God's grace alone, you've heard this before, through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Now the King James Version here reads for the word administration, godly edification, the NIV reads God's work, and dare I say, both of these words, translations are weak, and that they miss out the real nuance of this word, because the Greek word for administration here means management or stewardship. That's what it carries. That's what it wants to portray. And we see that in other texts, in 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, and Colossians. And so the idea is that the gospel message is a treasure entrusted by God to men who will give an account to God on whether they have managed it and dispensed it faithfully. That's what we have in verse 11 of this chapter where it says entrusted. Same idea there. Such a steward of the gospel, of God's administration plan, isn't free, folks. He isn't free to modify the message or teach whatever he, or dare I say she, likes or what he thinks He wants his audience to hear. Now a lot of that goes around on our day, doesn't it? A lot of that goes on in our day. As we saw last week, such a man is under orders from God to what? Such a man who teaches is under orders from God to instruct, that is to proclaim what God has revealed and nothing else. Why? Why? Simply this, because the goal of this divinely inspired teaching is to bring about salvation, eternal life, that this glorious treasure offers. It's to bring about changed and transformed hearts and lives. By how? By faith. Alone in Jesus Christ alone. We see that at the end of verse 4. But sad to say, as in every age including our own, there are those who tamper with this apostolic message, right? And they use all sorts of conniving and manipulative means and for all sorts of reasons, even in the so-called evangelical church. And this is the same sort of thing that was going down at Ephesus. You know from the Joel Olsteins to the Crefo Dollars to the Joyce Myers to the Benny Hens and the list could go on and on you know all these names they attract thousands and they make millions and millions and yet naive people are being seduced by their false doctrine as being apostolic truth and even stepping back Step back from specific people. We also need to see that of all the religions in the world, there are only two categories one is true and the other is false. There is a true religion of God's administration where his management plan through Jesus Christ is to bring to himself a people from every tribe and every nation by divine accomplishment. You get that? By divine accomplishment, that is, without any human effort. That's one category. That's one category, by faith. And then there is the other, the religion of human achievement. This is where people, by their own effort, attempt to, to gain God's favour through religious ceremonies and doing a whole lot of good stuff or even some good stuff. That's the other category. So here's the question. Here's the question. What teaching are you standing on or standing for, folks? Is it the apostolic teaching where God's administration has been received by faith or is it the other of human effort, which is false? False. That's the question that you need to ask. This is why Bible teachers must be faithful to the biblical text. This is why I endeavor to be faithful to what the text says and speaks. And, and I would not dare step out of that. James reminds us that let not many of you be teachers because you're going to be accountable, more accountable than others who do not teach. I dare not step out of of being faithful to his text. So we have God's management plan that we must be faithful and teach and we know that that is received by faith and we know that that alone brings eternal salvation by faith and nothing else does. Second, Bible teaching sets God's love as its outcome. We see this in verses 5 to 6. You know, the world has some pathetic definitions of love, or what love is. And sad to say some Christians have failed to pursue God's meaning of love as well. For example, it may be said that I have not shown love by naming some of our present day false teachers. It may be said that I'm being unloving and judgmental, etc. And I should have just sort of kept that out of my message. You know what, that's precisely the kind of cultural definition of love that we must avoid that kind of love means means being nice to everyone and, and not criticizing anyone of or, or, or their teaching or their teaching you know, as I said before, if that is love, if that's the way we should go, that's the way I should go, Paul contradicts himself by telling Timothy to confront these false teachers and by his criticisms, especially up front and personal in verse 20 of this chapter where he names Hymenus and Alexander. What does he say about them? He says, among these are Hymenus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. Man, he doesn't hold anything back, does he? Are you going to call Paul unloving? Oh, no. For three years, he admonished and warned these people with tears. There's love, Paul contradicts himself, but it isn't. Our definition of love must encompass all of what Paul and our Lord Jesus did and taught not just when these two men were nice. So what does Paul do here in verse 5 and 6? So what he does is that he contrasts the goal of his instruction with the end result of false teaching in the church. That's what he does. He contrasts the two. And Paul seeks to produce uh, in the church that's what God's required. And here it is. What does God require? Love toward God and those who belong to him. After all, as we know, it's essential that believers, what, what is Paul promoting? He's promoting love toward God and toward others because what? Because this is what the Lord Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself, as we've already looked at. That's the overall purpose statement of every Christian. It should be stamped upon us. It should be our purpose, our goal. Jesus emphasized this by saying in John chapter 13, verse 35, by this, in other words, by loving God and loving others, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one for another. Now this kind of love is not human engineered love. It is love that comes from God. And if you're not a believer, you wouldn't know anything about this love but I trust you will as you repent and trust in the Lord. This is the love that is poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit and it was given to us when we came to faith according to Romans chapter 5 and verse 5. There's a miracle here. This is a time when we get new aspirations, new desires, new longings, which has a love for God like never before and a love for others like never before. The Apostle John said this later on. He said, this is love, about this love, he says, this love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God and the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. 1 John 4, 7 and 8. We call this divinely given love, the special kind of love that only believers have and should be practicing and should be developing, we call this love agape love and you would have heard that as believers it's a love that acts freely it's a love that acts without obligation it's a love that chooses to deny self and to sacrifice whatever for the benefit of others you know anything about that kind of love? this is the kind of love that Paul is talking about here folks in verse 5 Paul reminds Timothy and us that agape love is defined in three ways and let me just go through those First of all, biblical love flows from a pure heart. When we think of a pure heart, we think of the psalmist who said, Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? And then he answers his own question with his well-known words. He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Psalm 24 verse 4. Also David, after his sin, an adulterous sin with Bathsheba, he cried to the Lord in repentance, create in me a clean heart or a pure heart, O God. Psalm 51 verse 10. You see, folks, love from a pure heart is a heart that has been cleansed and washed of sin. By what? By coming to church? By taking this communion? No, 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 no. That's just good works and religious ceremonies. We're cleansed and washed of sin by the regenerating work of God's Holy Spirit and in faith we accept God's administration plan in Jesus Christ. We believe in that and we're given salvation. It's a heart that is obedient to God. A pure heart is an obedient heart. Paul reminds us of in Romans chapter 6 verse 17 where he says, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you committed often in the new test often in the scriptures heart and mind mind and heart are synonymous and here it is the same you see folks to love from a pure heart is to love unselfishly sacrificially just as we see and modeled by jesus christ our lord that's the measure that's the real measure When God's Spirit through His Word confronts our selfish motives, we must confess and turn from our sin rather than be indifferent or deny our sins or excuse our sin and even, dare I say, blaming others for our sin. That goes on a whole lot too much. And we can be caught up in that. Love from a pure heart will cry out to God for that selfless, pure love that truly seeks God himself and the good of the person that God brings across our space. That's what biblical love from a pure heart does. Biblical love also stems from a good conscience. From a good conscience. This is the second prerequisite of love. And we need to note that it's... it's not just a conscience, but very descriptive, a good one. And I'm sure every single person will know the difference between having a good conscience and a bad conscience about something, right? And why is that? Because God has given every single one of us a conscience. This is the faculty that God has given mankind to determine right from wrong. It's like a, a personal self-judgment or a self-criticism system that we have within us. It will either affirm our thoughts and actions or it will accuse us of wrongdoing. You know what that's like. An accusing conscious, what does that produce? Man, I know this too much. It accuses despair and guilt and fear and remorse read titus chapter 1 verse 15 and according to romans chapter 2 verse 14 and 16 everyone stands guilty before god because every person whether religious or a pagan or whatever has violated his own conscience no one gets away from this and who gives a conscience god We all know the difference between a good conscience and God has set the standards between right and wrong and we all know when we violate our conscience. But you see folks, those with a pure heart or mind will not be condemned by their conscience because our conscience has been made good, right? It has been cleansed by the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross who has died and cleanse us from all sin. We have that in Hebrews 9 verse 14. But here's the tricky part. Here's the tricky part. Even though we as believers have had our conscience made good, it still needs to be maintained, right? Even as Christians, we sin and our conscience kicks in. That's why we should praise God for a guilty conscience for the despair and the guilt that we feel when we've said something wrong or thought something wrong or done something wrong as Christians because we can praise God that he has sensitized our conscience to know what is right and what is wrong especially as we dig into his word and learn more and more about his revealed truth about how we should live. And so that why that is why we don't go and do things that the world does. That's why we, we'll put the brakes on stepping outside of God's will and what God has commanded us, whether it be in relationships or whether it be in business or whether it be in whatever or whether it be in, in the moral area. We will know what is right and wrong. And the moment you step outside of that, you want to praise God that your conscience kicks in. And if you go against your conscience, that's a serious, serious matter. You're lining yourself up for some serious discipline from the hand of God according to Hebrews chapter 13 so our conscience needs to be constantly maintained and, and the, the, you know the apostle Paul even said this you remember he was up getting towards the end of chapter, uh, the book of Acts in chapter 24 there he was before his first imprisonment he, he was standing before Felix the governor this powerful man in the politics of his day And he was giving his defense. This is what Paul said. I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and men. That's what he said. So we do this by confessing our sin and, and keeping short accounts with God and by seeking forgiveness from those we have wronged. Do you do that, folks? Do you do that? Do I do that? I need to ask myself, do I do these things as often as I should? Do I thank God for my conscience and maintain it as I should? You see, it's only when we have a good conscience will we be rid of despair and doubt and fear and guilt and shame that accuses us. It's only from a good conscience will confidence and joy and hope and courage and contentment flood our hearts and it's then, and only then, will agape love flow. Thirdly, biblical love arises from a sincere faith. This is the third aspect of agape love. And um, it has the idea of being without hypocrisy, without any pretense whatsoever. And the false teachers of Ephesus, or even today, they didn't, do not produce this kind of faith. No, you see, this term of sincere faith goes—it goes way beyond outward appearances. And and what it does, it, it looks deeply at the heart. This sincere faith does. It looks right into our motives and our intentions of why we do things, and why we even come to church here today. Why we have sung as we did. Why we're listening and thinking as we are now. Sincere faith is a faith that is deeply rooted in Jesus Christ, and that sincere faith will always produce. You know what? It'll always produce a love for others. And the and the logical conclusion. Wow. Well, um, what is my love for others like? Is it as it should be? And if it's not, you know want to go deeper and be like Paul said to the Corinthians, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. And so sincere faith wants to please Christ. You know, hypocritical faith doesn't want to please Christ. Hypocritical faith, you know what that does? It plays to the audience. Ignores and forgets that God is watching. It's not even an issue for those who have a hypocritical faith. A pretend faith will go through all the religious motions to convince and please people but never ever fools God. You can put on an outward show of faith that looks pious to everyone but really underneath your heart and mind is completely self-serving. These false teachers were all of this and more. They had defiled impure hearts. That's what they had. And their conscience accused and judges them. And as a result, they had a hypocritical, pretending faith. They ignored their conscience. They pushed it aside. That's thing one about a conscience. It's not the in all, end all, you know. Don't rely fully on your conscience. Because what happens to a conscience? The scriptures tell us it come seared. It become cold. It's the word of God, the spirit of God, that reveals things to us. Paul adds in verse 6 that once you, uh, as I say, these, these, these false teachers were, were hypocrites. And, uh, and he adds in verse 6 that, that once you stray, in other words, you, you, you miss the mark. That's what happens. You turn aside once you ignore and, and, and with, with defiled hearts. You go off course. And like these teachers and their followers, you will never produce love true love true love which is the fruit of the spirit as we have in Galatians 5, 23 and then the another description we're given here in the text is that these people these hypocritical uh, people that haven't got a sincere faith they're like doctrinal wanderers they're always chasing some new theological or philosoph- philosophical fad which only will ever result in endless and fruitless discussions. You know, we've even in our time we've seen this. One thing pops up in the theological arena of debate and books are written about it and then it dies off and something else pops up, then it dies off. and And much of it, I'm not saying all of it, but much of it is fruitless discussion. And we've seen men who have been considered to be evangelical giants who have got off on a tangent and, and many of them, where are they today? Nowhere. Are they. Matter of fact, they've been so taken up with, with wrong doctrine that they've proved that they never had true and sincere faith in the first place. Men like Rob Bell, I'll name him because he's an outstanding one, Who attracted many, many believers by his cassette and video ministry. But today today denies heaven, denies hell, denies the need for justifying work and says that everyone will be saved because God is love. It's a lie of the devil. He's caught up in this and never had sincere faith in the first place. My dear people, that kind of faith will never produce the love for God and the love for our neighbor as God commands. So let's do some stock-taking here. Ask ourselves... As I ask myself, you ask yourself, do I have a pure heart through faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's the first. It's got to start there, folks. Do I have a pure heart? Have I come to understand that I'm a sinner and I have sin in my life, sins in my life, that will condemn me before God and that do condemn me before God? Because God says we're condemned already. You need to come to Christ in faith and trust. You need to have your heart made pure. It's not saying that you'll never sin again, but it's saying that you will be made right with God because His righteousness becomes your righteousness. Do you have a pure heart? Do you have a sincere faith where there is no pretense or hypocrisy? You know, we have seen that biblical teaching is assigned by God to those who teach, and that biblical teaching sets God's love as its outcome. Do you have a sincere faith? What I want to do in closing now is to look at the fact that love that is not in step with God's truth is not love at all. We see this in verse 7. False teachers in their following often emphasize love and unity at the expense of apostolic truth. That's what often happens. And you would have heard them, and I may have indicated something of this already. They will often use words in their defense like, we need to love everyone, we need to be tolerant, don't be judgmental, etc. You know the voice that's out there, even in our world, and sad to say, even in the church. But it's interesting that these folks who cry such a philosophy are only tolerant of everyone except the person who confronts sin and of serious theological error. They are not tolerant of those kind of people. These people may well love, but it's not true biblical love. We can spot them by their doctrinal wandering. But we also need to spot them for what their motives are. And it's not agape love, which it should be for any sincere in the faith. See, Paul says that their motive is a desire for position and reputation. You must say, where do you get that? It's a desire for position and reputation. It's not to see the truth taught and to see lives changed. See here in verse 7, what did they want? These people wanted to be teachers of the law. You see that? I said before, the Apostle James puts the dampers on wanting to be teachers. He said, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. James 3.1. And so what happened was that these teachers, they they want the upper place, they want the place of authority, and so they thrust themselves forward, and their motive is not to honor and please God. Their motive is all about self and position. They even use the law of God or their false understanding of it, to accumulate for themselves followers. 2 Timothy 4.4 says, who will turn away their ears from the truth and turn aside to myths. So we need to see the motives. Prestige, places of authority, and dare I say it, in our modern day, these men and women make a whole lot of money out of it. The goal of false teachers is not to, cremate, to create an environment of love or to develop an environment of love but purely to boost their own egos and to fill their own pockets as a bonus. And nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. Though they appear to be impressive false teachers are without any real understanding of the true goal of biblical teaching, which is to develop in the believer, every believer in the local church. What does it to develop? What is true biblical teaching to develop? It's to develop biblical love from a pure heart, develop a good conscience that has been sensitized by the Spirit of God, and to develop a practicing sincere faith. That alone must be the goal of our commandment. So let's not be distracted from it. May God add a blessing to his word this morning. Shall we pray? Our gracious God, we give thanks this morning and again for the opportunity of opening your word. And Father, we we pray that we might heed it, we might be challenged by it, And we might be changed by it. Confront us, Lord, with sin in our lives, we pray. Let not our conscience become seared and indifferent to what is right and what is wrong. Help us to see from your word, not from my words, nor from any preacher's or teacher's words, but your word, that your word is truth. And there is a way that you have given to us that we should go. And so, Lord, we pray for your goodness upon us, your mercy upon us. Watch over us during the next working week. Protect us, protect our families, protect our marriages, and we just ask that you would just instill in us a greater love for you, O God, and a love for one another. This is the greatest of all commandments. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ.